This episode of Clear and Vivid with Dr. Eric Topol is brought to you by a presenting sponsor, Discovery. For more than 30 years, Discovery's global networks have been helping hundreds of millions of viewers understand their lives, their communities, and the world around them. From science and nature to food and lifestyle, and now the world's biggest sporting events and greatest names in travel and documentary films. The Discovery family proudly informs, entertains, and powers the passions that drive our planet. On December 14th, 2020, End Blindness will make history by awarding the first-ever Sanford and Sue Greenberg Prize to End Blindness. Thirteen pioneering scientists will share $3 million in prizes for their groundbreaking scientific and medical contributions to end blindness permanently and universally. The Greenberg Prize Awards Ceremony, which will stream online, brings together luminaries from arts, sciences, entertainment, and politics, including Art Garfunkel, Margaret Atwood, Al Gore, Michael Bloomberg, and more. The award ceremony will also feature a moving tribute to the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a longtime supporter of the End Blindness movement, including extensive footage of Justice Ginsburg reading from Hello Darkness, My Old Friend, the memoir of End Blindness 2020 co-founder Sanford D. Greenberg. If you want to learn more about End Blindness, you can read about it in Hello Darkness, My Old Friend. And for a special treat, you can listen to the book read by Art Garfunkel. For more, go to SanfordGreenberg.com. Join us on December 14th, 2020 at 7 p.m. Eastern at www.endblindness2020.com to be a part of this historic moment. That's endblindness2020.com. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. The more deeply we understand each person as an individual, the better we can deliver the the right medicine. So let's say biology, like the genome, uh, their anatomy through scans, their physiology through sensors, their environment through sensors. So collecting all that data about a person is going to get us to a point which no human could do. That's why we need help from machines. That's Dr. Eric Topol, one of our country's leading visionaries in the field of medicine. And he offers a fascinating shift in perspective. I've talked with a few people on this show about how digital technology might be threatening our privacy, our ability to relate, and in some cases, even our health. Dr. Topol comes at it from a completely different direction. Remember when a visit to the doctor's office meant that the doctor took the time to go over all the factors that might impinge on your health? Well, now it's recognized that there are many more factors to consider, and our doctor has much less time to consider them. Surprisingly, Eric Topol comes to the rescue with artificial intelligence. I'm so delighted to be talking with you today because I I find you brave, courageous, because here you are so dedicated to empathic medicine and yet brave enough to mix in artificial intelligence. Sounds brave to me. It probably doesn't sound brave to you. (laughs) Well, that's very kind of you, Alan. I I think that we're looking for some help here because we've lost so much over the years with respect to the patient-doctor relationship. And so I know it's uh, ironic, uh, it's counterintuitive to think that AI could help us, but I really think that's the ultimate goal. That's what we should be thinking about. So how can it help? They seem so disparate. One yeah, is, one yeah. is data and numbers, and the other is 
looking the person in the eye, listening to their story, applying the medical touch, all the things that we associate with the medical experience in the past. And now we're adding number crunching. How does that help? Well, I guess I'd summarize it in just four words, the gift of time. And basically what has happened over the years is that doctors became data clerks and they largely, uh, two-thirds of their uh, activity is not uh, patient-related, but typing in keyboards and working on administrative tasks. That high a figure, two-thirds of the time. And would, and during that time, they're not looking at the patient, they're looking no. at the keyboard. That's right. And, and often with their back to the patient. Yep. And that's a real serious problem because patients are feeling shortchanged and they wait so long to get an appointment, then the time with the doctor is so limited and there's not even eye-to-eye contact. So, so, so speaking yeah. of time, pardon me for interrupting, but let me just get a handle on this. The time you're talking about is, my impression is that it's way less than the time doctors traditionally in the old days spent with the patient. Right. What, That's right. Uh, what's the difference? How much time do they spend in a, say, a, a routine examination compared to now? Well, the average is about 10 minutes. Now? And that, yeah, it's okay. about seven minutes for a return visit, about 12 minutes in the U.S. for a uh, new patient, which is extraordinary. It used to be when I was in medical school uh, in the late 70s, it was an hour with a new patient and at least 30 minutes for a return visit. So the amount of squeeze for doctors has been extraordinary. And, and that accounts for why and largely there's such severe burnout, depression, and the high, high rate of suicides like we've never seen in the medical profession. I, I, I'm always shocked to see statistics on burnout. More than half of physicians experience some kind of burnout, which leads to a sense of uh, inadequacy and, and, and sometimes making mistakes, right? Well, that's right, Alan. In fact, it's been shown that the doctors suffering burnout have a doubling of medical errors. And that doubling. sets up a, vi- a yeah, doubling. doubling. My God. So they, that sets up a vicious cycle because they have an error, and then they're even more uh, demoralized. So this is what something we have to break this vicious cycle, and we have to get time back with patients so that clinicians feel like they're executing their mission of why they went into medicine in the first place. In this ten-minute session that they have. Is most of that taken up typing? Is do they have even less time, or does are they relating during those ten minutes? Well, they're like you said, predominantly they're not looking at the patient. They're often they're back to the patient. So there's the lack of a human uh, bond is just so flagrant. Uh, so largely, the keyboard is the enemy, the common enemy of both patients and doctors. So how does how does the uh, the present the the introduction of AI help because doesn't the doctor have to enter something? What, what well, where, where's all the yes, data going to come from? Right, but not by pecking on a keyboard, just the voice. So, uh. just the conversation of that encounter, uh, a synthetic note on that basis has already been uh, uh, done in in places in the UK. There's clinics now in the US that are piloting this. So. It's also being done in China. So this is a far better way to get a note that's meaningful, that is the true exchange of what's happened in that encounter. And what's also sad is that notes today that are in electronic records, they're 80% of the notes 
are cut and pasted from prior notes, so they propagate all kinds of errors. Oh, and also, yeah. because doctors don't like to type, they, they don't have a lot of the useful information incorporated in the note. So voice is fast. It's passive. It doesn't require any active effort. You have to excuse me for challenging this a little bit because I'm trying to understand it. <laughs> sure. When I talk to my iPhone or my uh, laptop and I dictate an email, I got to check it really carefully because I've often asked people I'm in business with to send me their porridge. Right. <laughs> right. Well, I, you're, 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 you're right. The, what we have today uh, in the like Siri and Alexa, these are weak compared to what's been developed for the medical uh, voice uh, analytics. So the processing of data from voice, there's now over 20 different companies, some of which are tech titans, uh, you know, Microsoft and Google, but also mm -hmm. lots of startups that have been working on this for the past few years. And so now the level of, tr of transcription is as good as professional medical transcriptionists. So it's come a long way. It's not what you're seeing, you know, when you when you talk to your iPhone. <laughs> That's a <laughs> terrific relief to hear that. <laughs> the title of your recent book is Deep Medicine, which seems to contain three main elements. And one of them is the data, some of the data we've been talking about, but apparently even more extensive data. I mean, you you seem to be able to expect AI or perhaps AI is already delivering a, a, a kind of data collection that includes almost everything you can know about a person. Yes. The point, I guess, that we have been missing is how the more deeply we understand each person as an individual, as a unique person, the better we can deliver the, the right medicine, whether it's prevention, whether it's a, a medication, whatever it is, it's going to be far more accurate, precise, better for the person with this so-called deep phenotyping. You have to help me. What's phenotype mean again? Yeah. So phenotyping is characterizing uh, a person at multiple layers. So let's say biology, like the genome, uh, their anatomy through scans, their physiology through sensors, their environment through sensors. So collecting all that data about a person is going to get us to a point which no human could do. That's why we need help from machines uh, to a far better uh, uh, way to deliver medicine as compared to today, which is very shallow, uh, laden with errors. Uh, and it's just uh, not acceptable relative to where data and, and processing that information can take us. What's the next element in deep medicine? Is that, is that diagnosis? Well, diagnosis is a real big part of this. But there, besides the gift of time that we've talked about with the doctor side, it's also giving patients much more charge. So mm. we're already seeing now uh, the use of AI to make accurate diagnosis, as you've touched on, for things like urinary tract infection, ear infection in children, skin rashes, skin cancers. And so that's all doctor-less. That's all done accurately and validated without the need for a doctor. So, so how, for, how does the information get into the system so the diagnosis can be made? I don't quite get that. Yeah. So let's say you're in the UK and you 
think you may have a urinary tract infection. You go to the local drugstore, you get a, a kit, which is an AI-based kit, uh, test your urine, tells you whether you have an infection, and it's accurate. So the point there is you don't ever see the doctor. Huh. Uh, they, they, in that country, you get a prescription without a doctor. Here, you, you don't have to contact the doctor to get the prescription with your data. But the point being is a lot of routine things that are not serious are going to be offloaded to patients because we have this ability to uh, process that data with algorithms and decompress the need for doctors. Yeah, it seems to fit in with a, a paradigm that we're already familiar with, uh, pregnancy tests that you can do at home and other tests you can you can take that doesn't, don't require the presence of a doctor. And I guess that gives you more time. One other thing about the patient side, too, besides, as you point out, the more home testing, but also it's this virtual medical coach. Oh, so, tell me about that. What's, how's yeah, that? Yeah. So that, but that is already we're seeing it in certain conditions like diabetes. But here you have this avatar on your smartphone or your smart speaker, and it's taking in all your data, all this data that no human could possibly uh, process. You mean like and the way you walk and your heartbeat and things like that? Yes, yes. And then all your prior history, uh, all your, uh, your genome, your microbiome, you know, the works. And it's pr constantly, along with the medical literature that's getting updated all the time, it's, it's going to give you feedback in real time about you. So it, it, take, it, it, it collects all this information on me, and then it, it matches it against data that's been collected from millions of other people? Yes, that, you're, you're right on. In fact, you know, at some point, we could have learned from each other this, another type of AI. It's called nearest neighbor analysis, huh. matching you up as your closest digital twin. So let's say you had a diagnosis of cancer. And now we find these closest twins around the world that uh, have your genome and your everything and, and treatment and outcome that work best for someone just like you. Because, you know, today, Alan, we largely make our recommendations based on clinical trials of large numbers of people. And we don't have it at the granular level of a, of a person, of an individual. I think the, the idea that people will identify with about how AI can make a difference is cracking this diet story, which has been out there for seemingly forever. And that is that we should all eat this particular diet, that, this one or that one, which was all wrong because we're so unique. And so it was actually the group in Israel at the Wiseman Institute a few years ago that cracked the case by having data, extensive data from now thousands of people where they gathered not just their uh, everything they ate and drank, but their sleep, their physical activity, uh, their microbiome of their gut, all their labs, and on and on. And basically, with the glucose sensor that was wearable, they found that each person has a very uh, unique response to food. Like, mm. if you and I, Alan, ate the exact same food, the exact same amount, our glucoses would be completely different. Mm. So the point being is that what is the right diet for us? And it's only because of AI, which is like a virtual coach, we'll be able to get that information about what is the best foods that you should eat or I should eat. And that's just another way to use food 
as medicine in the future. We're not there yet, but we're making some significant strides because of this uh, type of analytic. That really sounds exciting because if when you consider food as a medicine, it's a medicine all of us take at least three times a day. <laughs> right, right, exactly. And it would be good to know we're taking the right medicine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we. We're, I I couldn't agree with you more. We got to get away from prescriptions and get a lot more use of the things that we normally do each day, like eating. Tell me how you perceive empathic medicine. What's going to happen when they have more time to be empathic during a visit? So, this time is the first step, which is you actually are now connecting the laying of hands, the presence. You know, people know uh, when you're really cued into them. As a, compared to today, when people start to talk and they're interrupted within seconds because a doctor feels rushed. Uh, and so we will never be able to digitize a patient's life story and that needs listening. And not even just to the words, but to the, the look, uh, the, the presence of the patient and the doctor. To get back the trust the, the sense of true care in healthcare, which has largely been lost. And so th th we're kind of in a desperate shape. And you and I are old enough to remember what medicine was like decades ago when it was a precious relationship. There was so much trust that you really relied on this doctor that was looking after you. Yes. But that's the exception today rather than the rule. And we can get back there. If you don't have that trust, you're less likely... I think, to follow the doctor's orders, to take the medication, to take it when you're supposed to, to even to remember what the doctor told you. Yeah, and, and it's so many ways you get that. So, again, I started the book uh, about my knee replacement, which was a fiasco, not the operation itself. But when I went back to the orthopedist uh, a month later with a, a purple knee, so swollen, and I was in really desperate shape, and he said I needed antidepressant medicines. Uh, and that this it is was the, knee, just, the knee doctor told you that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and it wasn't that my crying spells were not from that. It was from unmitigated pain, and, you know, the whole scene was, was a disaster for me. But that was a robotic response from a very capable surgeon. When I wound up finally getting a physical therapist who uh, changed the, individualized my therapy. She, she never said you needed depression medications. She actually cared about me. And mm. she would send me a text, you know, every day or two saying, how is our knee? Mm. That's care. And that's just the relationship that we crave for. And the fact that I got better uh, after all that, in part, wasn't just her physical therapy but knowing that somebody cared for me. And that's what we need from our doctor. Uh, and we can get there. You had a partner. You weren't, you weren't being delivered. It wasn't the delivery of medicine. You were together with somebody you trusted. And I, I can't imagine that that doesn't have an important effect on the patient. You said that so well. I mean, a partner, the, the, the dependence on someone that you know is really cares about you uh, that's what the essence of medicine is. And, you know, I know it's um, a paradox about could AI help us get there, but I don't know any other way that we can get to where we used to be. So do you think you can just 
ask doctors to be more empathic, managing your empathy, increasing it, managing it when you when you are in the presence of somebody who's suffering. Those things, it seems to me, need to be learned. Uh, you, yes. You can't just yes. give them a lecture and say, now be more empathic next time. <laughs> no, no. I mean, the first step is you got to give them time so they can connect. Yeah, <clears throat> make it possible. Who, yeah, you know, most people went into medicine they really do care, and they want. This is what they wanted to do, and so you know that's the first step. But you're right; it, it, it can't just tell them you need to do this. You have to be cultivated. It has to be nurtured, and in medical schools, of course, and selecting the people who are most likely to be uh, empathetic and caring and compassionate people. But the the other part of this is what got us into this trouble is that doctors don't run the show in their clinics and hospitals and health systems. It's run almost entirely by administrators, mm. managers. And are and they themselves what, physicians? No, no. Very rarely are they physicians. They are bean counters. They are squeezing the medical profession to see more patients, read more scans, read more slides, whatever, do more. And that's what got us into this mess with the electronic health records that were for billing purposes only. They were not to help the doctor or patient. And look what's happened with them. And then, you know, relative value units and health maintenance organizations, all these things were done to doctors and, of course, indirectly to patients because of this structure where doctors have these overlords. And the problem we have now, if they could use AI to actually squeeze doctors more. That's, that's exactly what I wanted worry. to ask you. With yeah. The gift of precious time is a gift only if you use it as a gift for time. But if you're, if you're being, uh, if your overlord is operating on the profit motive only and sees you have extra time, how's the doctor going to use that extra time for more, more empathic relating if the, if the boss is saying, you're wasting time, I want you to see twice as many patients? Yep, that's the problem. And that's where this could go. And that's what the realization, you know, I made when I was working on this, which is that we can't let this happen. We can't just roll over yet again. And what we've seen in recent times, as you know, Alan, is that doctors are starting to show their ability to organize. Mm -hmm. So, for example, with the NRA, and when the NRA came out after doctors saying, stay in your lane about taking on the gun policies in this country, all of a sudden the doctors came together, this is our lane. And yeah, that health, type of social health, media. health issue. Yeah, yeah. And so we're starting to see the beginnings of doctors organizing. And the hope is that we can organize around this because otherwise – uh, as you've pointed out, this is going to go the wrong way. And if it's possible to make things worse, then we'll see it. But in this new world of AI, making sure doctors have enough time with their patients is only part of the problem. When we come back from our break, Dr. Topol tells me about some of the serious dangers of artificial intelligence itself. Be right back. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Dr. Eric Topol. This is such important stuff you're talking about. This is, this is such an important change in our lives that will come about if what you're proposing or predicting will happen, the, the using of AI 
to to benefit our health outcomes. But you have in the book an example, and I think it it really uh, shows your your impartial, objective, scientific approach to this. An example of AI not working so well. Oh, there's so many examples like that. But the one that was that I immediately think about is what my father-in-law when he was um, hospitalized, and uh, basically they were letting him go. They told my wife and I and the family that, you know, he's a dead man, essentially, and that we need to discontinue all the life support. And, uh, you know, we were going to take him home uh, to hospice, uh, into our homes to die. And uh, the morning he was getting ready to be transferred, literally being put on the gurney to take out of the hospital, um, he woke up and started talking and, you know, calling for um, my wife. And uh, it was amazing. I mean, she was in the hall, and here was the person who was never going to come out of coma. Um, so that was the, the algorithm there predicted 100% that he was going to die. And obviously, it was like a Lazarus uh, thing. And this is a point, is AI is not so great at predicting things. It's really good at reading images, uh, it can be trained. It can be trained, you know, as we talked about for speech, voice, but for predicting outcomes, you know, it's it's okay. It has a long ways to go. That's a um, startling story because he he could have, you know, in a, in essence, he was almost being left to die. If there was anything more that could have been done to get him back on his feet, you had been officially told hope is lost. And yes. the the algorithm told you that, yes. And that's what that's sort of at the heart of what worries me about uh, this converging these converging lines that seem to be leading us toward algorithms running our lives more than more than may be prudent. For instance, here's my basic worry. Maybe you can help me out with this. If if the machine is working like a, an artificial neural network and putting data together and see when it has a chance or what probability of being a good match and leading to some useful further matching. I'm, I'm saying this in a sloppy way, but the idea that the machine takes so many twists and turns as it puts together data that it never tells us how it arrived at the final conclusion. Right. So we don't know how it got there. And yet, and yet it could be making life and death decisions for us. Yeah. No, I'm so glad you brought this up. I mean, this is a, not just the idea of the black box or lack of explainability, but what you centered on is why we always will need doctors to over, provide oversight of any important matter. So if there's anything like diagnosis of a cancer or a need for an operation or you name it, we want a doctor to review that uh, output from any algorithm or neural network because it could be wrong. It could be subject to malware. It's often, right now at least, uh, lacking explainability. So now I, you've, made me, you've made me imagine a scene in a movie. And young, <laughs> young Dr. Kildare says, I don't care what the machine says, this person is not going to die. Right. Oh, but doctor, you're just operating on your gut instinct. I'm telling you, this patient is not going to die. Well, the machine is always right. How often are you right? So now, 
<laughs> it's so right. It's so apropos. I mean, really? we're, we're going yeah. to wind up yeah. with a lot of scenes like that. <laughs> well, but, you know, I would track, I would trust the human oversight with the added support of the machine. It's going to be objective data. It's going to see things we can't see. And yes, there's work being done by AI to deconstruct these algorithms, these neural nets. But the point is that it's giving a whole nother uh, support for doctors to process immense data that they could never uh, uh, do. So the example here is the symbiosis or the synergy of having these neural networks plus a doctor. And mm. that's why it's so silly for people to be talking about, oh, we're going to get rid of this type of doctor or all doctors. I mean, that's just nonsense. So we want to have both. You you mentioned this has been done uh, in other places successfully, some some aspects of what we're talking about. And and I, I heard you've been working in the UK with the health system there. What, what How far have you gone with that? Well, the interesting thing, uh, I got commissioned by the government to review the NHS to lead a big uh, group there. And uh, the NHS is a lot more progressive than I realized because they, for example, in emergency rooms in the UK, they're already using, they've already gotten rid of keyboards. They're using voice mm. to make the notes, which is, you know, in an emergency room setting, I mean, kind of like, that's like kind of like MASH. <laughs> What is really great is the patient gets a copy of their note with mm -hmm. all the information in there rather than just, you know, very uh, small pieces of it. The idea is that there's a lot going on there, and most patients forget stuff by the time they get home. Or if they've been in the emergency room, you know, they go there because they're acutely ill. This gives a much more comprehensive, complete, uh, documentation of what happened there so they can go back to it. And I think this, and it, you know, the note uh, is a far better one and it's automated. Um, so I think this is showing you that it works there is really, um, I think, a nice foray into where this is headed. And in the next few years, we will see much, much less keyboards when we go uh, for a doctor visit. I'm wondering if there's any reason to introduce the data scientists who are working on these AI projects, if there's any reason to introduce them to real physicians. And I realize they're, they're not directing the way the machine learns. They're just having the machine compare data and learn on its own. But would they benefit from having some translational experiences with the doctors? Oh, you're bringing up uh, an ideal uh, combo. The more we can get data scientists, computer scientists to work with doctors, the better, because they tend to work each of these uh, disciplines in isolation. And so, you know, the you know, classic thing would be, oh, we got this great algorithm. It's got an accuracy of 99%. And the doctor says, well, that's nice, but does it help patients? You know? <laughs> <laughs> so... We got to get these groups working together so they don't, you know, futz around and they work right. on algorithms that are going to help people. Right. It doesn't help uh, to know that 90% of people <laughs> don't like the robes they're wearing the, the, in, in, in the hospital. Right. <laughs> or maybe it does help. Actually, actually, I'd like to see data on how many people feel humiliated by having to put on those little skimpy gowns. Yeah, that would be most, for yeah. sure. <laughs> it certainly was me. 
right. And they open in the back where you can't do anything about it. I know. Isn't it amazing? It's never How did that happen? Fixed. How did that, what, what kind of empathic <laughs> medicine is that? Well, that kind of tells a story in itself, doesn't it? It, it seems to me to. It's the, one of the yeah. first signs that I'm a piece of meat when I walk Yeah, in. well, you know, what you're bringing up there is that patients have been suppressed you know, from like the beginning of the prof- uh, profession you know, for millennia because it was a paternalistic doctors and they, they, they didn't object to these gowns and a lot of other things. They kept the data to themselves. They didn't give patients their notes. They still don't in the U.S., uh, the majority. And so we got to get over this paternalism and we got to start thinking about much more from the, the patient perspective. And, and gowns would be a really good start. The idea of referring to the patient as a person and not as a room number or an organ or a disease seems to be a really good first step. Right. And that goes along in the continuum of empathy. Uh, If you don't see uh, the the patient as an equal, if you don't listen, if you don't really get uh, a bond established, and it's not going to go very far. It reassures me to know that I'm sort of on the right track in in following your your example of how I how I try to get doctors to be more empathic. Because one of the one of the ways I think I know that is I gave a talk to doctors once because I am an expert in one field of medicine, which is being a patient. So I speak <laughs> right. to them from the point of view of my expertise as a patient. And I and one one talk I gave I I I entitled, the patient will see you now, and I realized later that's the title of one of your books, <laughs> right? And so the patient will see you now. That's a flip, of course, to the some of the most famous words in all of medicine. The doctor will see you now, which which and, is really after that three hour wait. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you wait three weeks to get the appointment. Then you're yeah. an hour in the waiting room, and then yeah. then the receptionist says, "The doctor will see you now." It's like, <laughs> yeah, oh my gosh, right. help me, you know, help so, me. So my so, my take on that <laughs> when I gave that talk was to flip it, and and I, I must be your take on it too, to flip it that the patient is the one with the information you need to get. Yeah, and and that flip, you know, it's still in the early days uh, because it was so entrenched in the doctor being the, the doctor knows best and in control, but we have to cede control. We have to, you know, communicate better. The thing that's really tipped this, Alan, is the fact that when it, all the data went digital, it became eminently portable. And so it's very hard to suppress and withhold information from people now because they have a right to have. It's their data. It's their body. It's their, uh, they're the, the ones that have the most uh, critical interest in, in, the, in the data. So it's so, easy to, oh, so easy to download. You, you, uh, right, right. You have no reason to keep it. Yeah, why doesn't everybody have all their data? I mean, nobody does. I mean, it's all distributed in multiple different doctors and health systems, and they don't have their actual scans. Did you know that 10% of medical scans in the U.S. are repeated because a patient can't get a hold of their scan? That's and interesting. so I've, it's a waste of billions of dollars just I, because I've, people I've, don't I've, own their data. I've had a scan that I've gone to a, another doctor once or, or, or three doctors, and needed the scan, and I had to have this, the actual original scan transported from one doctor to another. And at one point along the way, it's bound to get lost. Right, right. Well, and, you know, a lot of people, they just can't even 
get it to happen. Um, yeah. It's just, there's so much difficulty in getting your data that you paid for. You know, yeah. it's like, what's wrong with this picture? What's the rationale for not releasing the data to the patient? I don't get that. Well, legally now there are there are laws that are supposed to happen, but the real story is the so-called information blocking. And basically what that is is that the health systems don't really want to give out the data. They don't want to lose the patient. They don't want these second opinions to be done. You know? <laughs> we can, we'll keep you by keeping your data. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, they, they're, they're, it's a default mode is whatever we can do to prevent this from being, for you acquiring your data, going elsewhere, we're going we're gonna to do that. Uh, it's, it's rampant. They'll keep my shoes next. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Eric, it's been so much fun talking to you. I really have enjoyed it, and it's been illu oh, illuminating. I thoroughly enjoyed it, too, Alan. What a real treat. Before we close, we, I hope you're, hope you're up for this. We, we always end with seven quick questions that invite seven quick answers. And they're generally about relating and communicating, which is really what we've been talking about today. Are you up for it? Sure. Okay, first question. What do you wish you really understood? Oh, gosh, that's a tough one. Uh, well, I mean, I think the meaning of life uh, is always there, out there is uh, you think about it all the time. Um, and I think that that's something that I ponder about quite a bit. Okay, good. What do you wish people understood about you? Well, a lot of people think that I'm into the technology where they don't really understand that that's just a, 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 a path to enhancing uh, the humaneness, the humanity. So I, I think they really don't understand. If they were a patient of mine or they were a colleague, they would know better. But that, that I think, is a misperception. Uh, okay, next. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? I think the first question. <laughs> <you asked> me. <laughs> but that's a question you ask yourself all the time. It's not so strange. Right, but you, but you brought it out. That's the difference. <laughs> yeah. Okay, here's the next one. How do you stop a compulsive talker? That's a good one. I think uh, the way to do that uh, is uh, nonverbal communication. Um, Go to could sleep. Be, well, I mean, you know, you kind of get antsy, move around, uh, uh, you, yeah, you're yeah. looking somewhere else, because if you try to cut them off, that doesn't go too well. So, you know, I think that you have to try to convey your the, that the person's just uh, needs to kind of let up uh, in different ways. Okay. Now, I want to frame this next question. If you take empathy as meaning you're taking the other person's perspective into account, not that you're compassionate toward them or sympathetic toward them, is there anyone for whom you just can't feel empathy? Well, I think that's a really important uh, point. Uh, there's a lot of times you, you might get that sense is I, I can't feel empathy for this person. But that's where you, that's what we want to strive for. I mean, mm -hmm. I think that that reflex about that this is something about this person which is just, you know, very negative. Uh, we, we don't want to go there. We, we really want to 
we really want to see the the positives about everybody. That's such a good point. That I am, and the way I hadn't heard it put that way, and it, it's to a great extent, you're saying when you feel I just can't experience empathy for this person. In a way, that's when you need to call in, call up, call up your empathy the most. Yes, that's where you got to go into system two thinking, yeah. you know, and you got you got to not be reflexive, but reflective. Good. And you got to say, hey, you know what? There's a human being right here, and there's some things I don't like about this person, but you know what? I, I, that's what I'm all about. That's why I'm doing this. And you got to you got to reach for it. Okay, how do you like to deliver bad news in person, on the phone, or by carrier pigeon? <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, no, that has to be done by in person. There's no other way. How do you there's like no, it? <laughs> uh, but you don't like it. But but there's there's a there's an art to that. It takes time. It takes time to do that, and uh, it's essential. But doing that through phone or email or some other means is just unacceptable. Uh, of course, sometimes that becomes necessary just because of uh, unusual circumstances. But that's where the human-human bond thing is, is really the, the essentiality. Last question. What, if anything, would make you end a friendship? Hmm. Well, I think a sense of real betrayal I think that, you know, when you feel like someone's going after you um, ad, ad, ad hominem, um, that that would be really a challenge to a, a friendship. Uh, fortunately, it doesn't happen very often. But, you know, I, I think uh, I've certainly seen some examples of that uh, through through my life. Um, it's it's really um, uh, heartbreaking when it happens, but but unfortunately it can happen. Well, I've had a lovely conversation with you. I hope that's the beginning of a beautiful friendship, Louis. <laughs> <laughs> well, I really enjoyed it, and I, I look forward to uh, having more chats with you over the years ahead. Me too. Thanks so much, Eric. Bye-bye. Thank you. All right. You take care. This has been Clear and Vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to Discovery for being our presenting sponsor this season. All the income from the ads you hear go to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Just by listening to this podcast, you're contributing to the better communication of science. So thank you. For more information about the Alda Center, please visit aldacenter.org. Dr. Eric Topol is an executive vice president at Scripps Research and the founder and director of Scripps Research Translational Institute. Dr. Topol has published thousands of peer-reviewed articles, and he's now widely viewed as one of the most influential physician leaders in the country. His book, Deep Medicine, which just hit bookstores, focuses on artificial intelligence. You can find Dr. Topol on Twitter discussing his latest research at... at Eric Topol. This episode was produced by Graham Shedd with help from our associate producer, Sarah Chase. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula. Our tech guru is Allison Costin. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening.
バイバイ。Next in our series of conversations, I talk with my friend Henry Schleif, who has made a real impact in the field of television. The ability to communicate in this world, communicate effectively, is so important. It's more important than being a brain surgeon, because really, how many people can a brain surgeon save in a in a career? A hundred, five hundred, five thousand. But in communication, entertainment, print, digital. You can affect the lives. You can influence people. Millions of people. You can inform. You can inspire people around the world. What greater career could you possibly have than something in some form of communications? Henry Schleif, himself a great communicator. Next time on Clear and Vivid. <laughs>